everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Well, we're turned on. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What's up? What's up, guys? What's up? No agreeing. What's up, Frank? My, my good friend, uh, Miguel Torres. We're going to jump in with, with no intro. I mean, I, I don't know. If somebody doesn't know who Miguel Torres is, then uh, they're going to have to listen and just discover it because I'm happy to have you, Miguel. It's been long, long overdue. Um, former world champion, like I said on my social media, pioneer, I think in my mind, a definite USC Hall of Famer. I don't know when that's coming, but if I got a vote, that's a slam dunk. Uh, definite UFC Hall of Famer. I was telling Noah during the week, um, you know, you're a Carlson Gracie protege, and a lot of people now in 2020 don't know who Carlson Gracie is, but he's a legend in jiu-jitsu. He's a legend in MMA. Tell me about the early days how did you get linked up with Carlson Gracie? He used to call you his rooster. You know, you, you got to, I think, 33 and 1. You were you were on top of the world. Tell me about that relationship. It's kind of like your gut, your custom motto, in a way. Tell us yeah. about Carlson Gracie, yes. that relationship, and your, you know, that part of your journey. Uh, before I met Carlson, I had already started fighting. So when I met Carlson, I was already a pro belt under Ricardo de la Hiva. And uh, I was ahead about maybe 30 fights already. And when I met Carlson, it was after my loss to Ryan Ackerman. I had torn my ACL. I was like 22 years old, torn my ACL, had to get that repaired. Instead of listening to my doctors and taking time off and doing rehab and stuff, I got back in the gym right away and pushed myself. And I had a good doctor that had me, he gave me a, a, like a different kind of ACL surgery than a normal kind. And uh, I fought really hard and I, I fought seven months after my surgery and I lost the decision. After that fight, I went to Brazil again, trained with De La Hiva, getting my mojo back. And uh, De La Hiva's like, why are you coming all the way out here to Brazil to train with me? And I'm not training any MMA guys right now. I'm doing a lot of I'm not saying I won't work in MMA, but, you know, you don't have the gi in MMA. Carlson Gracie, the guy that trained me and gave me a black belt and trained Laborio and Mario Sperry and all these Bustamantes, all these different guys. He's in Chicago, you know, and you're from Chicago. You can train. I had no idea who Carlson really was at the time because if in those old days, for the kids who are watching that are, that are younger, that didn't grow up with uh, AOL dial-up modems. The old days of the internet, you know, I would get on the internet and look at stuff or try to download videos or whatever. And if your mom picked up the phone or you got a phone call, it cut you off. So I didn't really know who Carlson was. Um, all the jujitsu that I was learning up until then, I would travel to whatever gyms. In those days, there weren't black belts in Indiana, where I was from. I'm in East Chicago, Indiana, and like the tip of the border of Indiana, Illinois. So we're close to Chicago, but expensive to be out there, to train out there with those guys. So I was training everyone in Indiana. So I was going to Indianapolis, anywhere in a 50-mile radius of my home. And uh, Dele Hiva told me to come meet Carlson. I came back to meet Carlson. Little did I know Carlson was already watching me fight in the Hammond Civic Center where I was fighting at. Uh, he had a couple fighters that were fighting in the same shows that I was fighting in. And when I first started fighting, I was always the first or second fight. But I was such a draw and a spectacle to watch because I was this real skinny little guy at 130 pounds beating up all these big guys. In the old days, there was no weight classes. You know, it was like the lightweight class was 130 to 160. So I was fighting guys that were cutting from 185 to 160 to get in there. And they were like these giant muscle-bound guys. And I'm this skinny little dude with like no muscles and tight shorts that were too big for me. I didn't have my own shorts. And uh, I was winning these fights, so I was selling more and more tickets every time. And the promoters would get mad because after I would fight, because I was too young to stay in a bar, because I was fighting in bars and clubs, 
they're all like, you can't stay here after the fight. You got to leave. So when I would leave, all my guys would leave with me. So the promoters were like, well, hey, we can't make a video. We can't sell DVDs if there's no people in the front row. So I was like, well, if you want me to, my people to stay, I got to fight later on in the card. So Carlson would watch me. He would stay and watch me fight some of the main event fights that I would fight. And when I would fight in the old days, I would come out with a mariachi band. And I had a whole crew with my own logo and my own T-shirts already. So I was like going to college for marketing at Purdue. And so I was literally given projects to like develop a company and develop a brand and do all these different projects for fake things. And instead of doing something fake, I had already had my own, my own gym already. Even though I wasn't a, a black belt, I was a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. I had enough experience to where I was like training people already to start like uh, help me train for fights or to train them to fight. So that was the beginning of that. Once I met Carlson, Carlson, the first day I walked in the room, he wasn't there. I got, I walked into his gym and he had just went to Brazil. So I was training at Carlson's for two weeks. I met Stefan Bonner and all his crew and uh, everyone knew who I was already. So when Carlson came back, the first thing he did was he threw me a t-shirt and he told me that he was going to make me, you know, a world champion and that I was, you know, he's going to be his rooster. And from there, that was the beginning of everything. What's the significance of the word rooster? Because different, different cultures, rooster might mean a different thing. Like in America, rooster doesn't really register, right? In more Latin American cultures or South American cultures, rooster might have more of a connotation. What he's Brazilian, you're of a Mexican American descent. What did rooster mean to Carlson? And what did rooster, what does rooster mean to you when he says you're well, a rooster? All over the world, like a rooster is like a, a badge of honor. You know, it means you're a fighter. Like uh, your rooster is a small bird, but it will fight any animal, you know, to the death. And uh, Carlson was a big, big on betting on roosters. He loved rooster, you know, the rooster fights, cockfighting. So, uh, you know, he seen me as like a, a little guy, but not scared to fight. Any, no matter how big you were or how strong you were, I would fight you. And uh, he had seen that. So that's what he got. He dubbed me the rooster. So I still have that. You know, my hat has it on there. <laughs> so tell us about the Car Carlson, the character, because this guy... Again, today's jiu-jitsu people only know what they see on YouTube, and they only know mostly today's stars. Um, tell us about Carlson Gracie, the character, because I was I was telling Noah, Robert Drysdale, who you know well, you and I have trained, mm -hmm. you know, gave me my black belt. You used to come out to Vegas. We trained many times in Las Vegas. You know Robert well. And Robert Drysdale just did his book, Close Guard, and he said, I mean, he's interviewed so many historical figures He's done the research. He's met a lot of Gracies. And he said, hands down, his favorite Gracie is Carlson Gracie. Tell us about the Carlson Gracie you know, the character, the kind of things he would do, the stories around him. Carlson was an incredible man. You know, uh, anywhere he went, no matter who was he, he was around, he'd make you smile. He'd make you laugh. He'd make you feel good. He'd tell you a joke. He'd tell you a story. He was the kind of guy that would walk into a restaurant. He'd invite you to eat somewhere. And you'd walk in the restaurant. So after we train, we go to Chipotle, we go to Starbucks, we go eat somewhere. And wherever we went, he'd walk in. He would walk behind the registers, shake hands with the, with the cashier, give them a kiss on the cheek, you know, go in the back and talk to the guys. They had his food ready already for him. As soon as you see him walk in the door, if there was a line, they had his food ready for him already. Most of the times he didn't. He was one of the corner. He gave you this feeling of uh, invincibility, like you weren't going to lose, like you were on the right track and you were where you're supposed to be. Carlson, like in my mind, when I, before I met Carlson, I already knew I was going to do something big in my life. I knew I was going to try to make it to the, in the old days, if you were under 155 pounds, you weren't considered a fighter. So I would meet guys and they'd look at me and they'd be like, dude, you're 135 pounds. My wife's 145 pounds, dude. You're not, you're not a man. You don't have the, you know, they would make fun of small guys. And me, I was bullied my whole life. That's where I learned the martial arts to try to like make a name for myself and defend myself. And, uh, 
when I grew up and I started fighting and then guys still didn't appreciate that I was like 10 and 0 or whatever it was. They were still talking crap. I'm like, man, I still got to do something, you know, I got to change people's perceptions of things. And meeting Carlos and kind of put that all in the line because Carlson seen the same thing in me. He's seen how I gave back to my community, how I was training. I, at that time, I had maybe like 80 people, maybe like a quarter of those people were training for free. The kids classes that I had, you know, mom was a single mom with three or four kids and only one, she couldn't afford one. I would allow the other two or three to train for free. I'd get them their geese. I'd help them with tournament fees and stuff like that. So I was really big on giving back, even in the old days, because to me, I always wanted that when I was younger. I never had the opportunity. And then when I did find something to do, I couldn't afford it. So I just couldn't turn around, pe turn, away, turn people away that couldn't afford stuff like that. Carlson seen like a big heart in me and he seen how I gave back and how I was a showman and how I just, I was similar to him in some ways, but Carlson had this, it was just the air about him, his aura. It was just like, it would glow, you know, he would smile and you could not, you could not look mad or be sad when he was around. What are your, what is your favorite one or two Carlson Gracie stories? Give me a story. You know, this is a guy who seemed like a very dynamic character. What story stands out about him? He always had a fanny pack, right? So I was already a fanny pack person by this. Like I was, I grew up a nerd. So I was fanny packing in high school already. And uh, he carried a fanny pack too. But my fanny pack had like gum, my keys, some money, or ID, a credit card or two, a passport. It was like a little, like a, like a, like a go bag, you know? And Carlson's was like the bat belt. You know, that dude had like, T-shirts and CDs and money. He just had money from different countries. And it was just like, it was eclectic what was in there. So every time I would go somewhere with Carlson, I would wear my own shirt, a Torres shirt, you know, thinking I'm going to go with Carlson Gracie. We're going to walk in and meet some other Gracie's, some big name people. And they're going to see my logo and they're going to see me big one day. And wherever we go, we get out of the car because I would drive wherever we go. And we get out and Carlson will go in his fanny pack and he'll pull out a double X T-shirt, a Carlson Gracie shirt and throw it at me. Just put this on. And me at that time, I, I still wear smalls, even though I shouldn't, but I wore a small shirt, you know? So wearing a double X shirt, it looked like I was wearing like a, like a nightgown, like a kid's nightgown. And I had to like tuck it in my pants, and pull it back in the, in the back and walk in there. And he'd tell everybody in Portuguese, you know, this is my rooster. This is the Mexican rooster. He's going to be a world champion. They talk all this crap and they would look at me. And I was like, a, the sleeves were down to my, they blow my elbows. And it was just, it was like a funny scene, you know? And I, I never forget the feeling of like feeling invincible. I still feeling like I wasn't a tough guy because Carlson was like, put this shirt on. And I was like, yes, sir. So that was one of like my memories of him. Wherever we go, Brazil, anywhere we go, I'd always try to market my own brand. And Carlson's like, nope, put this on. What do you, Miguel, what do you think in terms of, because each, each academy has its own different identity. Some schools, especially back when you and I, you and I were training jujitsu when only the diehards were training. It was like the military it was wrestlers, former wrestlers. It was fighters and everybody else, you know, our wives, our girlfriends, everybody else thought that we were crazy and you're never going to make any money and you're always hurt. So so especially back then, each academy had its own different identity. Some of them were more gi. Some of them might be more no gi. Some of them might be more MMA. What was sort of the identity? What made Carlson different? Was it that his jujitsu mindset was really more of an MMA jujitsu mindset. What do you think distinguished him, the identity, the kind of academy that he established? I would say the big difference between Carlson's gyms and any other gym I've been to is that Carlson's jujitsu wasn't just for tournaments. Even though they had a lot of champions in tournament settings, he trained a lot of fighters. So he never turned away catch wrestling or any technique from a different style of grappling that looked effective and that was dangerous, he would use. And he wouldn't turn away a technique because it was not a grace bound by the Gracie system or whatever. You know, he was very open to different techniques. 
He used boxing, he used wrestling, he used judo, he used kickboxing, he used, excuse me, he used a little bit of everything. And whatever worked is what he wanted, wanted, what he wanted to teach. And he was always about the finish. Control position, always being heavy, putting a ton of pressure. My logo actually is his old fight team, Arabenta Sal. Under my logo is what I, is I have the same, the same thing. That Arabenta Sal means surf. And that surf, when the water hits the shore, the water's hitting the rocks. And then over time, the rock turns to sand. You know, that means with consistent pressure, you can break anything. And my gym was kind of already formed that way because, again, I didn't have a lot of uh, tutelage from a black belt or a brown belt to teach me good techniques. I had blue belts that were teaching me. And those, if, if you were a blue belt in those days, you were a monster. And uh, in those days, you kind of built your system off of that. You know, you were a, a leg lock guy. And it was all illegal moves, heel hook, ankle lock, wrist locks, uh, neck cranks. It was all the dangerous moves. The stuff that they won't teach now, they were all about that in the old days. The, whatever was going to work effectively. Yeah, now I've met I've met Carlson Gracie guys in more recent years, let's say the last 10 years, and it seems like a lot, like a disproportionate number of Carlson Gracie guys have great top pressure. You know, like a yeah. lot of jiu-jitsu guys were the bottom game. You were very, very slick from the bottom with arm bars, with triangles, um, you know, so you... But it seemed like Carlson Gracie, like they really liked top game jujitsu at a time when a lot of people in the early going liked bottom game, played from your back jujitsu. It seemed yeah. like he was a guy that was like, if you can, because you, you didn't come from a wrestling background, but was his preference, was his preference usually be on top and really heavy pressure? What, what was, what was his mindset on that? His mindset was if somebody, if you were going to be on bottom, submit the guy or sweep him. If you get on top, Stay on top and crush the guy. Crush him till you get to his back or till you choke him. If you were going to be on bottom and you couldn't submit him and you're doing MMA, throw. and I was doing that already, throwing punches, throwing heel kicks, throwing up kicks. Like You're going to make yeah. the guy suffer from being on top. You know, Don't take any damage and give damage the whole time. To always consistently attack. There's no defense. There's no going backwards. It's only going forwards and trying to attack. Your best defense is to attack nonstop. And that was what my old style was based off of already. Yeah. Let, let's talk about your journey, your arc growing up there in the Midwest. Um, tell me what it was like to grow growing up Miguel Torres. Tell everybody what that was like. What stands out uh, about growing up Miguel Torres? I always wanted I, I wanted something that I could never really find. I was always looking for like a Mr. Miyagi or a sensei that was gonna take me under his wing and kinda like raise me like his son and show me how like to do the death touch and snatch a fish out of the water and catch a hand with my eyes closed like Van Damme did in the blood sport. So I was always looking for that like Samurai Sunday master, you know, and I never found that guy. Uh, I started training with some friends in high school. From high school, I met some buddies that had a couple different gyms and I started, you know, from fighting, you meet different people. And I wasn't a threat because I was 130 pounds at the time. It's because I was so small, every gym wouldn't mind me coming through because to me, to them, I was just like a, uh, a punching bag. And to me, it was like, these guys are wrestlers. I'm going to learn some takedowns. These guys are armbar guys. These guys are neck crank guys. Wherever I went to, that specific gym had like one or two, two good things that they were good at. And wherever I went to, I was able to like defend myself, show some stuff, learn some things, just to get like a different feel of like what everybody's styles were. And so my style is kind of like an amalgamation of different things. Um, I think in the early days, what separated me most was that I fought so much. I was going to school at Purdue and I didn't get a ton of scholarships, so I had to pay for it myself. My parents couldn't help me out. So I figured instead of taking loans out and being stuck in debt, every mo every uh, semester I had six months to pay it off in a deferment. I'd fight, you know, maybe like four or five times in those six months and try to make three or 400 bucks a fight, sell a bunch of tickets, market my own shirts, and then pay my tuition off that way. So because I was doing that, 
I kept winning, you know, I was so, I want to say like I caught a fire after my first fight, I won in, in 10 seconds and, uh, everyone thought I was going to get beat up. I knocked the guy out and you know, I get a fight the next month. I submit that guy in about two minutes and I wasn't getting hurt. So I was fighting these fights that, you know, the rules were very, you know, there were the old school rules. There was no weigh-ins. The weigh-ins were kind of like rigged. You know, it was between 130 and 160. If you looked all right, the same, same height or whatever, they put you with somebody. Um, they didn't check your, there was no blood check. There was no medicals. There was, you know, it was just like, basically you came in that day and you signed up and that was the guy you were going to fight. And you had no idea who you were going to fight sometimes. You're in a room of like 20 guys and you're all sitting down with your, with your camps. Did they even weigh the other guy in front of you? Probably just like, no, just trust us. He was 160 or, you know, like there was always two scales. Right. So they like, they had it like in the small little locker room where the girls would change. Right. And so they had a scale there and the porters in there and there's like a line of guys. So you never seen nobody else weigh in. You had no idea who you were going to fight, you know. That day you walked in, everybody would walk in and sign up to fight, and then they would get the weights that matched the closest, and they put them together. That was the yeah. old days. Yeah, it's and then there was no glove check. I fought with these old gloves. They were the yeah. Marco Huas Vale Tudo 2000 gloves. The padding was all on the back of the fist. There was no padding in the fingers or knuckles. So when the referee would come in and check your gloves, he'd grab your, your hand like this to see if there was padding on the back of your fist, but he didn't touch your knuckles. There was no tape. So I would literally punch guys with like a, a leather glove, like a, a going outside glove, not like a fighting glove. So the old days were kind of crazy. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people, I've heard criticism, they'd say, well, they said this about you, they said this about other people. Well, he didn't fight anybody, blah, blah, blah. But you were just doing the best you could with what was available to you at the time. It wasn't your fault. that There was, there was no my class. Yeah, it wasn't your fault yeah. that there wasn't really a market for small guys, for people that weigh 130, 135 pounds, the market wasn't mature enough. The demand yeah. wasn't there. You were the exception because, like you said, locally, regionally, you would you would sell tickets. You brought a lot of people to the party, but the criticism would still be, well, hey, he hasn't. But, but Matt Hughes, in the same way you did, Matt Hughes had a lot of his early fights. The great Matt in the Hughes same, had a yeah. lot of his early same fights thing. Against, against people. Most, most elite fighters back then had that sort of resume early where you look at the, the shirt dog record, it's a bunch of guys you never heard of because that's really all there was available. The UFC, even the UFC at the time, wasn't paying that many guys yeah. a lot of money. And if yeah. you were under 155, you definitely weren't getting paid. And the, yeah, you and didn't the, get and paid and you had no respect. Yeah, the assumption was nobody wants to watch you. The assumption right. for you, Uriah Faber... Even Jen's Jen had to go up and fight guys 30, 40 pounds heavier than him. And the assumption was nobody's going to pay for that. You're not marketable. You don't move the needle. Um, and so but, but what's interesting about you that, that I correlate to and no one I have this conversation a lot. I talk about Bernard Hopkins um, sometimes because people who aren't familiar with Bernard Hopkins journey. Bernard Hopkins was a guy that didn't play by the promoter's rules. Like early on, he was like he was like, this is a bad deal. And he wouldn't sign with some of the biggies. And so they basically were like, listen, Bernard Hopkins, no one's going to know who you are. You're not under our banner, our, you know, our major promotion yep. banner. No one's going to know who you are. And, and Bernard Hopkins was very lucky. So he really never got his due until very late in his career, 37, 38, 40. Part of the reason I think he fought yep. so long is that he was denied. He was denied the big stage, the big paydays, because they, they couldn't own him. He wouldn't play ball. And and he did a lot of his best work early. But for a long time, you were like, Bernard Hopkins was an awesome fighter. 
But a lot of people didn't really even know who he was. He wasn't given his due. He wasn't given the big stage. You're a guy that even going back to the beginning of your career, because like you said, if people see you, you were so skinny. You don't look intimidating. You didn't look the part per se. So it just seems to me that every step of the way, even now, people just underestimate you. It's like you've just been underestimated, like whether it's on the street, whether it's whether it's anywhere, whether it's now giving you giving you your due for your legacy, which I think is a very impressive legacy. Um, How do you feel? Tell us about being underestimated and the effect that that has had on you. How do you how have you dealt with being underestimated? I think being underestimated my whole life kind of like made me who I am. I knew I was going to be something big because in the beginning of my career, I started, I was the first fight of the night because I was the smallest guy. And then I was the second fight of the night. And then I was the fourth fight. And then I was the sixth fight. And then I was the seventh fight. And then I was the main event. So if I could rise locally on a local scene and then draw from Wisconsin, Illinois, people from, you know, people come from Ohio, they will come down Florida to watch me fight. I knew if I can do that in like a local scene, if I got, noticed by somebody eventually would it would it would happen eventually i would get picked up on a on a bigger scene and it was just a matter of making attention and so how can i make an attention for myself to the world to make them notice what i was doing trying to finish my fights coming out with a mariachi uh just trying to be intense giving back to my community i was always trying to be proactive and trying to to never give up that never give up mentality and never give up attitude that always pushing forward no matter what happens whether you win or you lose that came from always being underestimated and that came from you know my early childhood uh, I always had this mentality where if I didn't win the first five or six times, I'd win the 20th time eventually. And once I got to that level, I'd go to the next level. And I've been doing that my whole life, from my academies to where I'm at now to my fight career. What, what, tell us about the Miguel Torres mindset because you were a very intense guy. I mean, I love you. are very competitive. You hated, you hated losing. You were very intense. Uh, you know, kind of had kind of, I would say, you know, I, I, I don't want people to take this the wrong way because it's it's legal, consensual fighting, but almost an assassin's mentality. Um, you know, you, you just had that mentality, uh, you know, as you would get closer to a fight that, you know, just sort of an, an annihilation, annihilation or a dominator mentality. Take us in to the mindset of you, the psyche as a fighter. Uh, that psyche was developed through how I used to train in the old days because I never had like a coach that was a fighter. I had coaches that were black belts in Taekwondo. There were kickboxing coaches. There were boxing coaches, but they weren't, none of them were pro fighters. And uh, even my grappling coaches, you know, none of them really were like high level grappling guys. They, they grappled, but they weren't like high level guys. I knew that I had to gain my experience in the cage or in the ring. And in the old days, it was a ring. It wasn't a cage, you know, and when I did fight in the cage. It was like a boxing ring with a dog kennel built over it. The fences were not, they were not coated. There was like, a regular fence, you know. And in those days, the guys that I was fighting were so bigger than me. When you stare down with that guy, if you blinked, if you looked away, if, if you looked scared, they knew they were going to destroy you. So I figured to myself, like the Mike Tyson mentality, how can I break this guy before the fight even happens? And when you wait down, when you pose down for the picture or whatever, I'd always try to have this like thousand yard stare to look through my opponent, not blink, not, you know, not smile, not shake hands, just give this like this chiseled, like grizzled mentality. And every time I want to fight, that mentality developed more and more and more. But it wasn't so much the fights. It was the training camps that I got to the fight. So because, again, I was training, you know, kind of however I wanted. I figured I had a group of 10 guys. We had a mat. 
And we'd have four guys stand on the corners because the mat was in a basketball gym and the mats weren't like fixed. So the mats would like move around. They were like those, those yellow mats that were like, they put them in the UFC locker rooms that they were like Velcro together. So the bottom was kind of slick. So if you were with just one other person and you're boxing, the mat will move around on you. So we had to have four guys stand on the corners and then we'd have the guys hold the edge and you'd have one guy spar two or three minutes. So I would literally, I wasn't getting shark tanked. I was shark tank 10 guys. And I would go two minutes to chew, two minutes to chew, and I would just spar like that. No shin guards, no boxing gloves, just MMA gloves and a mouthpiece. And that's how we would spar. So surviving a training camp to a fight, if I survived 30, 40 days like that, that was at least, you know, 10 fights a day. If I did it twice a day, 20 fights a day, the, fights, the fight I was already won. If I could beat 10 guys a day for two months, by the time I went to the fight, I was fighting just one guy. This guy is nothing to me. I'm going to crush this guy. So that, 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 that. That mean bully mentality that I took that took me to be a champion helped me get there. But my problem was after I lost that first fight against Bowles, I didn't know how to how to change into that suave thief mentality. Like my style now has changed so much when I was a world champion because I don't have any pressure anymore. I wasn't trying to keep everything that I had already had. I had amassed so much. I had amassed a huge gym, a worldwide following. I had a WC title I defended three or four times. Like I was, you know, I was doing some pretty big things for a guy my size. I was doing ESPN, MMA Live. I was doing appearances and autograph signings. So to me, I never thought I was going to lose that. If anything, it was just going to keep going up. And after I lost it, I was trying to like maintain what I had already amassed versus trying to grow and become a, a bigger, better person. And that didn't just go with my career. It went with my academy, it went with my relationship. It went with like a lot of different things in my life. And that all accumulated kind of at the same time. And that puts you like in a real tough spot. Because you got your hands in all these types of cookie jars and you're helping out so many people that, you know, you got to kind of like cut some places. You got to cut time in certain places. And that's kind of where it hurts you. Yeah, I remember one of the things I don't know why I remember this very distinctly, but I remember when I used to come into Drysdale's and we would just train on the ground and, you, you know, you would do stand up with other guys. And I remember, you know, I would come in and I would do like these 20 minute work uh, warm ups. And I would get there early and warm up my neck and roll yep. and, you know, my shoulders and do all these warm-ups, do some push-ups. And then, you know, yep. you would just come in cold, like woke up 30 minutes ago, you know, jumped in the car. And then uh, and then I'd be like 20, 25 minutes warmed up and you'd just, be, you'd just step on the mat. And you'd just step ready. on it. Let's go. And I yep. remember one day I said to you, I was like, bro, like, you're are you crazy? Are you not going to warm up? Are you nuts? And I remember the famous Miguel Torres line. Uh, you know, lions don't warm up. <laughs> yeah. You ever see a, you never see a lion warm up before it makes a kill, you know? <laughs> so for me, that mentality kind of was like a – so my, my, my martial arts career didn't just stem from like – I didn't want to get into jiu-jitsu to be a world champion in, in, in the IBJJF or a Pan American champion. I didn't get into kickboxing to be a kickboxing champion or a Thai champion. Or I learned martial arts for the simple reason to, to learn how to defend myself. So you're like even my jiu-jitsu now – I teach it, and my guys do well in tournament settings, but my jiu-jitsu is, is like the old-school cross Gracie jiu-jitsu. I'll show a technique and show be when you get out or you snatch around. It's very centered around like self-defense and self-preservation. Uh, in the same respect, using the same technique, you can win a tournament doing that. But my style came from mixed martial arts, trying to be the best mixed martial arts in the world, not the best, you know, whatever art I was training in the world. Now I enjoy jiu-jitsu, the sport. Now I enjoy boxing. Now I enjoy kickboxing. 
I don't really watch very much MMA anymore. After my whole stint with the UFC and I got dropped the second time, I kind of shied away from MMA. Uh, I'll watch a fight every now and then if I know somebody. But for me, I think the most important thing for martial arts is learning how to use it to be effective to, to like preserve your life or to defend people you love. And that aspect, I think, that separates me from a lot of gyms. Now, you were, you were unique. I mean, when I started in jiu-jitsu around 2001, they would just, you know, if there were 40, 50 um, athletes on the mat, you know, they would just line up half the athletes on one side, half the athletes on the other. You would, you would shake hands with the guy in front of you or the girl in front of you. You would roll with them for five minutes. The buzzer would go off. You would just keep rotating. Didn't matter if they... If the next partner was 250 pounds, 260, 180, 190. So that's old school jujitsu class where the weights didn't matter. Drysdale used to do that a lot when I got to Drysdale's even in 2009, 2010. But um, back then you were unique because you were actually sparring. I remember what Jason McDonald, I mean, you were sparring. I don't even know if you, I I heard stuff about you sparring with like Stephen Bonner, crazy stuff. Like Stephen Bonner's way bigger. I mean, you were... You were sparring with some big boys, and we're not talking about light sparring. We're not talking about going light. We're no, talking full about blown. full blown. Yeah, throwing the punches with intention. Yep. These bigger guys are not pulling their punches. Do you ever think, though, that I mean, again, back then I caused I caused the guinea pig generation too because it wasn't it wasn't like this total blueprint of how to train and how to peak and light days, heavy days. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't as scientific as refined. We were all just in the trenches trying to figure it out. Trying, to, trying figure to figure it out. Yeah. Train. So it was so new. So you were a guinea pig. I was a guinea pig. Do you ever, do you ever think though that, Hey, I, I, I had so many wars, not just in the cage or not just in training, but I had so many wars with these big guys. I wish I could take them back. My chin would have lasted more. My body would have lasted more. Do you ever think that maybe you overtrained, took too much damage in training with the big guys and think, man, I wish maybe I'd come along at a time when, you know, we weren't doing as much of that. Do you ever, what, what's your thought on that? That's an interesting question, right? Because I have a couple of different mentalities on that. I've thought about that myself a couple of times. If I wouldn't have done everything that I did, things wouldn't probably be the way they are now. You know, in, in, in the old days, in 2099, Nobody would have ever in their mind thought they were going to see females fight in the UFC. No one would ever thought a female would headline a card. No one would have ever thought a guy at 125 or 135 is going to headline a card. No one would ever thought one of the best fighters in the world is going to be a 145-pound guy. So I think that I had to do what I had to do to change people's perceptions. I think that if I wouldn't have done what I did, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. You know, If I would have stayed in the UFC or I would have kept my career there, I probably would have moved to Vegas or Montreal or wherever, LA or something like that. I wouldn't have my academy that I have now. I wouldn't have my students that I have now. I went through a lot of ups and downs after that, but I never gave up and I kept pushing, you know, and I think that that helped me stay where, I, where I'm at and helped me build where I'm at now. I'm in a better place now. I broke my leg last year. I gained some weight, but, you know, I'm, I already lost eight pounds. It's been four or five days. All I did was clean up my diet. I look at your, I look at your post, Frank. And I'm like, man, this guy eats so clean. I feel so dirty because I'll be eating like a taco and I'm watching your video and I'm like, oh man, should I do this or not? You know, I got a Pepsi in front of me. I got a taco in my hand, some rice and beans. And I'm like, man, I'm going to eat it anyways. I started doing a keto diet on Monday, you know? So for me, I wouldn't be where I'm at in my life if I wouldn't have went through what I went through. And I can't wait to see what's going to come out of what I've, what my stories got. You know, I have a good story to tell. I have a good experience. I have great students. 
um, I'm healthy again. So for me, I think that everything that I went through made me who I am. I can't change anything because things should be different all over the world. Tell me about, because I'm interested in this because I went through this myself. I mean, like, I'm, I think I was interesting at the time because I was the guy that was a journalist, that was a writer, and then I was on the mats, right? So, like, whatever. You were different, wrote, bro. You were different. If somebody, if, if somebody didn't like what I wrote, I was held accountable. See right? you on the mat, yeah. You got these journalists in the NFL, in the NBA, they can write whatever they want about LeBron, about whoever, you know, and they get away, they get, they get away with it. Right. But I was, I was accountable because it was like, all right, I'm on the mat. So if I got, but that's why your jujitsu got so good, man. That's why you're so good at jujitsu. You had to defend your shit, huh? That's awesome. Yeah. So I wrestled a lot, just like you, just like Drysdale. I was just, I'm, ultra, yeah. you, you know, you've seen me. I'm ultra competitive. I do not yeah. like to lose. So I grappled a lot going back to my wrestling days as a teenager. I grappled a lot with my ego and my ego was heavy because it makes things heavy. When you hate to lose, even in training, it makes yeah. things heavy. It can ruin your day. It can affect who's around you because you can be, you know, I could be hard to be around sometimes because things maybe weren't going my way. I wasn't yeah. winning. I wasn't performing like I want. And I'm not the easiest person to be around because I get maniacal. I, I would get obsessive. Yeah. Talk about grappling with your ego and how you've, you know, how has that gone for you? Like trying to make sense of, you know, grappling. Because every every elite fighter has to do that. You know, there's always this balance of ego. How have you grappled with your ego and where, what what sort of progress have you made? Where are you at with the ego, ego thing and fighters and their ego and how do you control it? How do you manage it? My whole ego got put in check when Dana White fired me on Twitter the first time. Totally got put in check. And uh, I want to say it was like in the gym when I would train, I never really had a bad day of training. You know, I would come in, I would train against whoever I trained against. If I got tapped or I tapped 10 guys or whatever it was, no matter what happened at the end of the sparring, I'd always tell my guys, we never leave on a bad note. It's like being in a relationship with your woman and uh, – you have an argument and you go to sleep that night in an argument or you leave that, that day to work and you never resolve the issue. You're going to come home and it's just going to fester that whole time. So in my mentality, if you leave the gym like that on a bad note, you had a bad session, you got dropped with a body shot, you got submitted with a heel hook and you got really upset about that. What I tell my guys and what I would do, we'd always end with like a workout session. We do a hit routine. We work some clean technique. We drill some, we'd, we'd always drill whatever the problem was. So we always left on a good note. So the ego that I had, I developed through my fight career, but it wasn't like never in the training, never in the gym. You know, if I ever got caught or I ever caught somebody, I was never cocky about it or I was never, you know, I was never angry about it. I knew it was just training. Fighting was a different thing. And it wasn't so much about the losing the fight itself. It was about the circumstances surrounding the losing. People would, you know, a lot of fans online talk crap and people, your, your, your friends who supported you when you were winning were on your side. Now they're telling you to retire. And it's one of those things where it stabs you a little bit in the heart. And you have to check that and you have to realize that this is a process of life and how you how you respond to this process is going to determine what kind of a man you are. are you know, are you are you a quitter or are you a guy that's going to fight through the hard times and become a better person or a better man? And that's always been my thing, you know, to survive the worst and come for the best. Now, the interesting thing I'll say for people who don't know who Miguel Torres and I've spent some time with you. We've eaten some lunches some dinners and, yep. and you're, you're going to laugh. And I mean this in a good way, but you're a lot smarter than you look, right? When people <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. When, when people see the mullet, 
you know, you're stubborn too. So you're like me. You got a lot of stubbornness in you, but you got a lot of, uh, you know. You, you, I'm not stubborn, bro. I'm sure. I'm just really, really sure. <laughs> but you're a lot smarter than you look than the mullet might suggest and other things. And so did, when you when you were going through the, the you know, the, after your career and, and, and dealing with, you ha- you know, you're at the top and then, then maybe, some, you know, you go through some things and things aren't going as well. And, you know, people who were on board the bandwagon are now jumping off and you're sort of whatever, whatever dark space you go into. When you come out of that, how did you come? I mean, some people read books, some people. What what's the way out for you? Did you do a lot of reading books? Did you consult a a sports psychologist? What's what was the what was the breakthrough? Did you just would you just mentally just try to do it yourself? Uh, I basically just stayed in the gym, you know, for me. The, like they always say, heavy is the crown, you know, but heavier is the fall. And when you fall that low, when you when you come from nothing and then you get everything and you lose it all, it's one of those things where it's like, like, what are you going to do now? You know, do you just get a regular job? Do you close your gym and just, you know, do something else? Do I, you know, do I work at the mill? Do I get a job at BP Amico? Like, do I go into marketing? Or, you know, do I just live like some regular, you know, like a regular guy does? And I never seen that. You know, I always knew that. I had a passion for martial arts. It changed my life in a drastic way. And they couldn't just change my life. If it just changed my life and ended there, I wasted my existence. So my big thing was to always get back to, I always wanted to create an environment that I always wanted when I was a kid. And I got to do that by giving back to people. So for me, whether I was winning or I was losing, I remember there was a couple of times I lost fights. I fought in Titan against Desmond Green. And uh, my manager, Glenn Robinson at the time, most of the Black Zillions, he got me to sign a fight against a guy named Desmond Green. And when he called me, he told me Desmond Green uh, was a wrestler from New York. He didn't have any training partners. He showed me a couple of Bellator fights that he had. He had no jiu-jitsu, no stand-up. He was just a wrestler. And I'm like, oh, for sure, I'll fight this guy. After I signed the contract, Faraz Zahabi calls me the next day. He's like, hey, man, why'd you sign that, that contract? You know, Desmond's one of our guys. He's been training here for the past eight months. He's been staying in your room where you were staying at when you were staying here. And I'm like, What? So I was like really upset about that, you know. I went into that fight and uh, I got knocked out with a knee. Really, like in the first round. I want to say it was like less than 12 hours. I was on a plane to come back home at 6 a.m. I took an early flight, early bird flight, so I can coach my students at a grappling tournament. So even though I had got knocked out, I had a split lip, it was my birthday. Because I fought on the 17th, the 18th was my birthday. It was my birthday and I had just lost a fight. And everybody in that tournament for sure watched that fight. And I walked in that morning to go coach all my kids and my adults that day. Uh, that's just a testament to like how much I love what I do. Whether it's winning or losing, it's always about being a better person and trying to be a better man. If I would not have went to the tournament, my students would have seen that, you know, my ego got in the way or that I couldn't handle a loss. And I want, and I, that was even the speech that I gave to my kids, you know, win or lose, you guys are coming here to do your best. As long as you do your best and you keep your head up in the end, you're a winner to me. And that's always been what I preach to my people. So I, I got to live the same way. What what psychologically wires someone to go into a cage and fight? Because a lot of people, right? You ask people their top fear for a long time, something like public speaking would come up, right? People were terrified to go and speak in front of 100 or 200 people. Nowadays, if you ask most people, like, hey, we're going to, we got a boxing match for you. It's four rounds or we have a cage fight for you. It's three rounds, whatever, three minutes, five minutes. A lot of people, it would terrify them. What, 
what gave you peace? What made you feel comfortable? And like, you know, was it worst case scenario? What, how, how did you make peace with, I'm going into a cage. And eventually when you got to WEC, where you were the champion, when you got to UFC, you're fighting the world's best. So what, what, how did you make peace with like, Hey man, I, this, this is my deal. I'm cool with this. Like, cause that's a terrifying thing for a lot of people. How did you make peace with the fear so that you could go out there and perform and do what you do? There was never any fear. I had, I had trained so much and I trained so hard that I was never scared to fight anybody. Even when I didn't train properly, I think you were in the academy at Drysdale's when I was training with AJ Agazon for the fight against uh, Benavides. Yeah. He took me off, off the mat and I tore my bursa. From the, from the bursa being torn, I got, uh, I got a staph infection. So my whole arm from my shoulder to my fingers, I still have this documented. I have pictures of all this. I was on a run of antibiotics for six weeks. The infection was so bad in my arm. And they would not let me back out of the fight. I, could, I, I couldn't train. I didn't box. I didn't wrestle. I didn't do jujitsu. All I did was do lift. All I did was lift weights. I literally had a staph infection in my arm, my whole arm. I couldn't do. I couldn't do any of that stuff. Uh, situations like that, kind of like, they develop your character to, to tell you what kind of a person you are. Uh, I don't know, man. It was. It's. It's a weird ride. For me, the fighting was never about about. Even that fight, going into it, you always do a self audit before you walk out to a fight. So every fight that I walked out to. I looked at the other person because you're in the same hallway. I knew that the guy, I had him beat already. I knew he was already beat. Whenever I didn't have a good training camp, whenever I was doing too much PR or I was injured or I had a bad knee or an infection or whatever, and I couldn't like do things the way I used to do them, it wasn't so much that I didn't have skills. I didn't have the confidence inside my heart because I knew I didn't put the same time in. When I would do a self-audit in my earlier fights, the other guy was a boxer, um, a Navy, Navy SEAL or whatever he was, a karate guy or a judo guy. I knew he just trained in that one art. And I knew he probably had a regular job and he trained at night or he trained, you know, four times a week. I knew I trained twice a day, every day, whether I had school or work, I lifted weights. If I couldn't sleep on that, I went for a three mile run. I was always doing something to try to accomplish my goal. And it wasn't so much about being stronger physically. It was about being mentally and, and, and spiritually stronger. And that kind of always pushed me over the edge in my fights. That's why when I was third guys down, I'd had this intensity in my eyes. And it wasn't because I was a bigger guy or I was a stronger guy. It was because of my spirit energy. And that was derived through how I spent all my time, how I spent my free time. Uh, and then when I got to the UFC, the WC and UFC, those guys were doing the same things as I was doing. So if I didn't put that same time in, I couldn't feel that error of visibility because I knew that there was something lacking in that, in that process of, that, of time. What would you tell since you, since you didn't, you would purge the fear, you would conquer the fear during training when you had your good camps. So fear was not an issue come fight week or fight night. What would you tell a young fighter who is dealing with the nerves during fight week, who's got the fear, who's thinking, what did I get myself into? I've got a tough opponent. What would you tell them? Train till you're not scared no more. If you're scared, that means you're not training right. You're not training hard enough. That means you're not ready. Don't be scared. When you're not scared anymore, you're ready. That's all I can really say about that. Let's, let's talk about cardio because one of the things I remember training about with you, you number one, you're very slippery. You know, you're very, you were a very slippery guy at a time when most MMA guys were not slippery off their back. You were very slippery and deceptive. You had really good triangle. You had arm bars. Like you said, you could punish guys from the bottom, kind of like a guy like uh, 
who's the fighter out there? The you know Tony Ferguson. You know you're kind of like a Tony Ferguson way before Tony Ferguson. Where Tony Ferguson is like a Miguel Torres. I was first. Yeah, there you go. Miguel <laughs> Torres, right? Ferguson is you. And I remember you used to have those heels. You'd be on the bottom. You'd have me closed garden. You just batter people with those heels. Got a lot. Of I would do one. Like, I would do one minute rounds in my gym on a heavy bag on my back, and I get a heavy bag around my legs in the guard, and I would do a one minute drill. So if there was like a round that I couldn't submit a guy and there was one minute left, I would throw 60 heel kicks on one side as hard as I could. Then I would switch sides, 60 on the other side. I would do that round after round. When I would hit guys with that heel, it was like hitting them with a sledgehammer on the, th on the thigh, when I could hit yeah. the kidneys in the back, in the buttock. And I always knew that when the round ended and we had to get up, they were going to feel that. They had to get up, walk to the corner, sit down again, stand up, we'll come to fight again. Leg kicks were going to hurt worse. Takedowns are going to be different. I always knew that I was going to grind that guy down eventually. What I also remember when you and I would roll, sometimes we would even be on the road, like the WEC, we would be on the road and you would be there and you wouldn't, I, I guess you'd be with somebody else. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't ha necessarily have a, uh, have a fight, but you would be there and you and I would train. And I remember you used to like those like 30 minute rolls and yeah. you did not get tired. Like it was like, you know, I did <laughs> sometimes get tired. And I remember, you know, it was like I knew when we rolled together, if we did it was those be a session. rolls, yeah, it was yeah. just like keep, keep going. It's like if nobody gets tapped, we just keep going. Kind of like a kumite. It's just yeah. like keep going. And you, you always had, not only in training, but in uh, in the fights, you were always, your cardio, kind of like a Diaz brother, your cardio mm -hmm. was just always just always on point you that was that's one of your greatest strengths you have that incredible cardio to just keep bringing pressure keep attacking and if it's minute 20 minute 25 minute 30 whatever um you always you always had that uh, that was something well that's how I, that was because of how i trained you know we had it we had the old days we would spar and even though we had a timer we never used it so i would i would get guys to come down from canada or from new york wherever they would come from to come train for like a week or two and they would show up and they'd be like, well, what are we going to do today? I'm like, we're going to spar. So I can get to know what you guys know and see who you are. We're going to spar. So like, well, what do we need? Just your gloves. No shin guards? No, we don't wear shin guards here. Mouthpiece, if you want to wear a mouthpiece, you don't have to if you don't want to. Uh, how long are the rounds? And I'm like, well, as long as you last. You know, it could be a minute and a half round. It could be a five-minute round. It could be a 10-minute round. I don't know. We're going to see how long you last. And we would spar that way. So to me, because I sparred my guys that way and my guys are used to that, we were always trying to like – put the other guy away immediately with a submission or try to drop him with a body shot. We didn't want to knock guys out with headshots too much because we had small gloves on. We didn't want to hurt nobody. We threw to the face, you know, but we didn't try to knock somebody out with a headshot. So we didn't want to hurt nobody. But the body shots and the leg kicks were full blow. And the grappling session, when we got to the ground, was very nasty. So when somebody came from a different gym and they were used to a three-minute round or a five-minute round, that mentality totally, like, that zapped their whole their whole energy. Just that, just hearing that kind of, like, wiped the whole look on their face. was like, oh, man, what did I just walk into? And then you get to touch that guy, you know, and then they, they don't know who, what they're walking into. They've heard about you. And in those days, there was no YouTube. They didn't put your fights on YouTube yet. So guys would hear about me or read about me. And then they would meet me. And like you were saying, they were like, there's no way it's this guy or there's no way this guy can do that. And then we'd spar and they, they, they'd find out. So for me, that, that whole cardio, that whole never give up attitude, that whole always pushing through the, you know, that, the worst that came from the gym. And like you said earlier, if I would have trained smarter, like when I met Carlos and Carlos told me I always overtrained myself. And he was right. You know, he goes, you're going to get hurt and you're going to train hurt. It's going to get worse. And after he had passed, a lot of my, a lot of my injuries came from overtraining like that. So there Tell was a point to that. But it was weird because it was a double-edged sword because that kind of made me what I was. Right. 
Yeah, it's kind of like Eric Morales. A lot of people don't know who Eric Morales is. You know, the Mexican fighter Eric Morales, I think, by the time Eric Morales was 30 years old, because of the way he fought, you know, he was, he yeah. was busted up. I mean, he wasn't the same at 30. I mean, I think he effectively retired. He was like, he peaked at like 28, 29, yeah. and then, you know, a lot of damage. But on the other hand, his his if I interviewed him or his coaches, probably the counter-argument would be, well, we wouldn't. He wouldn't have been be the legend that he is if he didn't fight that way. That's that's yeah. what, that was that was what that's who he was. So it wasn't going to be a Bernard Hopkins career, right? Right, um, right, right. Or, or a Mayweather career. So let, let's talk for a second though about the mullet, since you. I mean, it looks. I can't see the back, I guess, but but you know, you still you have the mullet. So what? Yeah. So that's not, that's sort of your signature, I guess. Like, uh, there's probably a lot of T-shirts there in Indiana. Can, by the way, can can Noah and I get some mullet T-shirts? Can we can we get a T-shirt? Uh, there there we go. I'll hook you up there. with a T-shirt and a hoodie. I got respect them on the T-shirts and hoodies. I will hook you up for sure. <laughs> I think Noah's a double XL, probably, or maybe. I don't know what it is. It might be triple XL now. You might not make them that big. You might be special order for Noah. I can make whatever you need, boys. I can make whatever you need. Frank, I'm, you're a medium. I'm probably a medium, but but like you, I've seen how you dress, and you're more of a medium guy. Like you wear yes, you sir. Worn shirts that were like way too small, but and then bust through them. Yep. <laughs> you've always. I can't. I always, I can't wear big shirts, man. It's not my style. I gotta pick up my hands, and you see my belly button. It's the only way it works. <laughs> this is the thing. How many students? First of all, how many students do you have at Miguel Torres, the Mar your academy there? How many students do you have, roughly? Pre-COVID, so I opened a new academy in a different town. Uh, I want to say it's about 15 miles from my original gym where I was at. Before that, I had 200 students before COVID. We were open for like three wow. months. No website, no advertising, no sign, just word of mouth on Facebook. We had about 200 students. After COVID, we had 100. So we're climbing back up. We're like at about 130 right now, but we're, we're working our way back up. The whole thing with COVID kind of slowed everything down. A lot of people are scared. People are nervous to come into the gym and the whole thing with the masks. And it's, it's just a big, a big uh, nail in my, in my heel right now. But we're doing well. We're still doing well right now. We survived the first run. I, th I know we're going to do well next year. So if you, when you had 200 students, how many of those students had a mullet? Mm, I'd say at least 25. Like right now, we probably have about maybe 15 guys that have some strong mullets going on. Really? It's catchy. Yeah. You know the whole. Catchy. You know. You know the whole story of this, right? You know the you, story you of how I got this. You can tell. So, us what inspired the mullet? I was training Eddie Wineland when he was in WC, and he was a champ. And I didn't have a mullet yet. Carlson had passed. I didn't cut my hair for a year, because Carlson always wanted me to grow my hair long. And I didn't shave. I didn't come here for a year. And then uh, a year passed. Eddie Wine and lost against Chase Beebe. And he disappeared for a while. Uh, Reed and someone, who else called me? Someone, someone else gave me a call. It was the other guy that owned WC. He hits me up and he tells me, hey, Eddie Wine hasn't, hasn't called back for a while. Uh, we want to know if you want to fight, you know, in WC. And I wasn't going to say no. So I said, sure. You know, I signed the fight. And then... Uh, I thought to myself, I'm going to be on live TV, but what am I going to use to like not market myself, but separate myself from the other people or the other guys. And most guys had tattoos and they had these cool looking, you know, logos or whatever. I wasn't going to get tattoos. 
I'm not a tattoo person. So I figured, as, as I'm thinking this, I'm in my mom's kitchen and my dad's drinking a cup of coffee and the window's like on the side and it's sunny outside. So there's like a halo around his head and it's just mullet. My dad has this, he has curly hair. So he has like this amazing mullet. He's had it his whole life. And as I seen this, I knew, as soon as I looked at him, it was like seeing a picture of a saint. I was like, that's what I got. That's going to be my look. I'm going to get a mullet. So I cut the sideburns off and then rocked the mullet from there on out. Um, you said something. And now, now, you and I know each other well, so you won't take this the wrong way. I probably could make this comment with many other people. But you said, if I'm hearing you correctly, you didn't, for one year, you didn't get your hair cut. And for one year, you didn't shave. But the interesting thing is, you're not like Drysdale. You can't really... What is it about, like, and some of my, a lot of my Mexican buddies can't grow, like, Noah's got the beard going, Drysdale's got the beard going. What is it about some of my Mexican hermanos that they just can't get a real beard? Because I don't remember you having a beard. And I, and I it wasn't. It was a you dirty mustache. A it was just. <laughs> if you remember the first year. fight that I had, the first fight that I had, even maybe even the second, I had a dirty mustache. It was just my hair grew long, like a Chinese, like it was like just long hairs would grow down. It wasn't like thick. And I didn't grow anything here too much. And it wouldn't grow in the middle. So I was like, man, people would make fun of me. They were like, dude, you, you don't have a real mustache. It's like my son's mustache and he's 12, you know? So I just, I don't know. My dad would always tell me when I was 18, my brother had a mustache when he was 12. This is why I said when you're 12. My, my brother hit puberty really, really young. I didn't hit puberty until I was 17 years old, man. My brother was 12, had a mustache and a beard already was like two feet taller than me. And uh, he's still a foot taller than me, you know? He got the good genes. So for me, every time I try growing a mustache, I'll ask my dad. My dad has an amazing mustache and an amazing beard. His game is amazing with his hair, right? And I'm like, Dad, when am I going to get my mustache? When you're 18, it'll come in. I was 18. When you're 20, it'll come in. When you're 21, it will come. Every year until I was 25, he's like, you're not going to grow a mustache, man. You could, you could just give up on that. So I don't know, man. I just just my run of the luck. I just got good hair. No facial hair, though. So you can't you can't grow a beard. You go one. No, year. Noah, Noah, nothing Noah, grows how here. Went, Noah, how long have you went to grow this? What are we looking at here, Noah? Oh, this is. Oh man, I think I shaved it down a couple of times over the summer. So this is, it's. I just you know since Drysdale made a comment saying he knew a Cuban barber, I went that week to my barber and had it trimmed back a little bit, but. uh it's already feeling long, and that's just—I just had it done two weeks ago. It grows fast. It's pretty gangster. Pretty it grows, gangster. It grows fast. Okay, I, I got to get in here with a couple questions, uh, sure, if, sure, if I can. Sure. Um, sure. You know, I'm a—I uh, served in the Marine Corps a long time ago, and um, you know, this was way before I—I I went in. Um, I went in 1991, straight out of high school, and you strike me as and where you're located and to where you know if i had been if if i can go back and do it over again at that age i would go to someone like you at your academy and say look i have played in band the last six years and i've got this wild hair that i'm going to sign on the dotted line with uncle sam and i'm going to go commit the next four to six years of my life um, as a Marine, um, you probably have had some military recruits, uh, poolies as we call them, come yeah. to your academy. 
can you tell me a little bit about how you get them ready? Because, you know, my goodness, I, if I could do anything, I would have done that. I would have, I would have gone up to someone like you and say, Hey, I'm going off in the core and I, you know, my body is, looks like I have, I didn't prepare for this and I need more than anything else. I need that mental toughness to get ready for it. Can you give me some of that? And what would days, you say? In those days, I would have said, go ahead and go change. I'll see you in the cage. And I would have put you through hell. And then I would have told you that this was nothing compared to what you're going to experience, you know, in the military. And that if you want to feel safe or comfortable over there, we got to start working out now. You only have however much time you have. And either some people would stay and they would put out the two or three months and tough it out. And some guys would never come back again. So that's, I, I've done that before in the past. And I do that to this day now. Whenever somebody comes in, they want to, they want an experience. They want to see what it feels like. Like you would not believe how many times a day somebody will come in and say that they want to fight in the UFC. If I can call Dana White or if I can call somebody to get them a fight somewhere. I'm like, well, do you have any experience? They're like, well, no. Well, how old are you? I'm 25. Okay. Well, do you have any time to train? Well, yeah, I don't have a job. Well, how are you going to pay for training? Well, you know, I don't know. I'm going to fight. Well, how are you going to fight if you don't train? So the whole thing is to placate them. I'll tell them, okay, well, here goes some gloves. Here goes some wraps. Put your stuff on. We're going to go in the cage. And now we wear shin guards and, and boxing gloves. We don't do MMA gloves no more. So I'm a little bit safer on that end. But I'll still lay in on somebody. That way they have the idea of what's going on. Most people don't have an idea of what's going on. And they have this fake mentality. So for me, I'll just give them what they want. So I will you stay. I, I, I was thinking, um, you know, you, you know, for me, I would say, well, you know, help me just get ready. You know, just help me get ready. I, you know, um, I'm not, a, I'm not going to be a fighter, but just help me, help me make it, you know, relieve some of that uh, pressure, uh, you know, in, in boot camp Cause it's quite a, you know, it's quite a learning curve. It's quite a growth curve. Uh, do you have any, do you have any current Academy students right now where you're taking them through that level? Oh, for sure. Now, see, in the old days, it was always about fighting or getting, getting ready for a fight or training somebody for a fight. I'm talking about now, nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I have a fundamentals class for beginners, for kickboxing and jujitsu. I have an advanced class for guys that want to compete. I have a, a class for people that want to do MMA. So now it's all separated to where people can, like, come in on their level and not feel intimidated or feel scared about it. So now it's a di- like I want to say I'm more professional in how I teach class. I'm not I'm not. Saying, oh, you know, everyone's got to spar tomorrow or, you know, if you don't want to spar, we'll do a hit routine or we'll stay on the bag or we'll do some pads. So everybody it's kind of like tailored to what your needs are. Everybody has different needs. You know, the girl that's 15 and the girl that's 48, they have different needs. They have different, you know, different goals in life. So depending on what your goals are, and that's probably one of the first things I'll ask people. What are your goals for coming here? What are you trying to get from coming here and being here? Why am I talking to you? Why, you know, how can I help you? And once I understand that, I'll know how to help that person better. In the old days, I didn't care you were going to help me because I was training for a fight. And if you didn't want to spar, you're doing the class. So in those days, in the old days, if you want to just, if you told me this, I'd put you in just kickboxing or jiu-jitsu. But if you came for the experience, the Miguel Torres experience, I'd give you the Miguel Torres experience. Noah, can I interject for one second? And I know you probably have another question, but, but, but along this along this thread that you, that you, along this thread, Noah, that you introduced, Miguel, tell, tell Noah and I about, um, what are some of the more dramatic transformations you've seen as students? Tell us about, you know, some students who've come in and what you saw and may, and, and then maybe about a dramatic transformation. What stories of transformation stand out with students? 
I have a ton of those stories. I've, I've changed the lives of so many people. And I'm not saying that to be cocky. I'm saying that because people have come up to me, people who I don't know have come up to me. I know that what I've done in WC and UFC has helped out so many people because people that watch me fight that didn't think that a small guy could be a jiu-jitsu champion or a, a world champion or a fighter or whatever. You know, that's how I know I'm old. You know, I'll be at a Naga. I was at one of the first Nagas that was out here. And I took a team of people out there. And I met a person maybe like two or three months ago at a, at a Naga. And they were like, hey, Miguel, you know, I want to say I'm a big fan. You know, I appreciate everything you've done for the sport. You know, you know, you, had, you, you never got your due. You know, I was nine when I watched you fight. And I was a really skinny guy and didn't think I can do this. And when I see you do it, I knew I can do it. And I started my gym when I was a purple belt and da 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 and now I have 10 guys here, and I'm like, man, I'm like, that's amazing. I've met so many people like that that I didn't train. People who I did train, I've had a guy that was 360 pounds. I won't say his name, uh, but he was a student of mine, and his goal was to not be heavy anymore, not to be obese. He wanted to lose weight and be healthy. So I helped that guy get to 210 pounds. I helped him train for his first MMA fight. I've helped people who were from a disenfranchised community, a single-family home, uh, even there, I had adopted one of my students when his when his mom died, and trained them to become like they're in the UFC now. You know they don't train with me anymore, but I, I've changed people's lives in so many different ways. That you know Neil Magny, when I met Neil Magny, he was in the uh, National Guard and he wanted to be a, a mixed martial artist. You know, I trained so many guys that 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 I touched with how I trained them and how I taught them and how I gave that that their lives are totally different now. So for me, I think, like I was telling you earlier, I, I couldn't really go back and change anything because all those experiences helped a lot of other people. You know, it gave them hope and gave them a chance to realize their dreams. So, you know, I've, I've, I've had, I, if I wrote, I could write just a book on just that. What percentage of your students right now are female? I'd say about 35, 40%. And that, that, does that percentage keep going up? Yeah, it goes up. The thing with the females that come in, in the old days, it was like you did kickboxing. If you did jiu-jitsu, it was going to be hard because you're going to roll with a lot of guys. And some of the girls didn't like that too much. Or their, their husbands or boyfriends didn't like that we're going to roll with a guy. Uh, now that we have our program, I have a gym pretty much in the old days. If I taught a class, I could only teach one class at a time because it was a small mat space. But now the mat space that I have, I have 4,000 square feet of mat, of mat space. So I'll give you guys a little look. Damn, I'm jealous, baby. Damn, looks clean too. Very wow. clean. Wow. Damn. Cleanest that you've ever seen around here. Damn, so, nice. You know, now, now in the old days, in the old days, you know, we had one bathroom, no showers, no locker rooms. Uh, it was kind of gross. You know, there was mold. There was mold on the walls. It wasn't like very, very clean. It was very clean. Now I have a space so big. At 5.30, I have a, a class for kids and then a class for adults. At 6.30, the same thing, class for kids and class for adults. So that way in the prime time, instead of you having to come at 4 o'clock and your kid does jiu-jitsu and your class is at 7 o'clock and you get home at 9.30, still got to do homework, still got to eat, still got to shower, still got to do all your stuff. Now the, the mom and dad and the son can come in. The mom can work in the, in the cardio room. She can work a hit routine on the weights. Dad can do jiu-jitsu. Son can do kickboxing. So now I have it to where it's not – uh, gym for fighters. It's a family environment to help, like not just the not just the son or the or the daughters, to help everybody. There's something for everybody here. In my time, my mom wouldn't want to come to class because she didn't want to sit in the parking lot for two hours. My dad didn't want to come bring me because he didn't want to come back and pick me up. Now it's something for everybody to do here, and for a reasonable price. Very smart. Now Noah, 
Noah, I, I've done, you know, Noah's done some BJJ privates with me, um, but he, he hasn't seen me more in a training environment where, where it's, you know, where we're really getting after it. What, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I don't know what you're about to say. What would you tell a Noah, like, what do you remember about uh, training with me or seeing me in a training environment? Because I think that Noah and probably a lot of people watching this probably think I suck. I think. No, I never <laughs> said that. that. So, so he was a journalist, Noah. And I never have. So the first time I rolled with him, I didn't know what to expect. You know, a journalist never tells me, hey, man, I'm going to be at the gym. You want to come roll or whatever? I'm like, oh, you know, OK. So I came down. We were going to roll. He was already like a half hour warming up already. We rolled for like what, twenty minutes, thirty. It was a long. It was a long roll. It was hard to. It was hard to catch him. And he was a very. He was a way better wrestler than me. And uh, I didn't realize how strong he was. For me, being a small guy and being strong, I didn't realize how strong he was going to be. And I was very. I was very impressed with his with his like, grappling acumen, you know. And again, he's a very smart guy. So it was like interesting to roll with somebody who was that cerebral and has skills like that. I couldn't imagine how I'd be to roll with them now. You know, so now I want to train with you even more now, bro. Yeah, yeah. So there, at least, though, at least, you know, no, no, Miguel's one of the few people who comes on that I have trained with. You know, we'll probably have some more, but I'm always like, yeah, you know, like people, uh, I think some people think because I got the blue eyes and the straight hair, they just think that everything was, uh, that, that, I, that I was, like, I met some guys last night, so I'll tell you guys the story. I went to a bar last night, right? So I don't like bars. And I don't really like karaoke. But last night, Friday night, I'm here in, like, the outskirts of Provo, Utah, and I'm at a bar, and I'm singing karaoke, with neither of which I'm really very fond of. So I was there, and, um, and the, the, you know, I met some guys there. One of the guys was, was, an, was an ex-Marine, and the other guy was, like, thinking about going into the Army or whatever. And he was talking about Special Forces, but he never, you know, just throwing it out there, right? Anybody, anybody can say, oh, I'm thinking about special forces, yeah. right? So, so I'm talking to these guys, and uh, the one guy's had too much to drink, and he's like, da 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 And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I trained, whatever. So we get on the topic of jiu-jitsu. The drunk guy won't shut up about jiu-jitsu, right? So I'm thinking I might be able to get a jiu-jitsu private out of this. I've got my card. I'm like, well, if you guys ever want to do like a private or something, here's my card. So the guy, the drunk guy who keeps talking about jiu-jitsu is like, well, maybe we could take a class with you if you're legit. He keeps saying like five times. If you're legit. If you're legit. If you're legit. So I was like thinking like, I mean, this guy's just looking at me and like in a flannel and, and jeans. But those guys never come, right? Did he show up? Yeah. Did he come train? Never, never, right? I said, bro. And I said this to him kindly, right? Because I want his business and I'm a nice guy. But I said, you're going to be able to tell if somebody's legit in like 20 seconds, right? Like legitimacy or illegitimacy is established. In, you know, if you, if you roll with a guy, you know in 15, 20 seconds if he's legit. The best answer, next time that happens to you, the best, the, what I would always tell people, because I always get, that's why I hate going out to watch fights or I hate going to bars and clubs because I can't enjoy myself. People would recognize you and start talking to you. It's about fighting and I'm in a gym all day. You know, it's 7.30 here and it's, you know, I'm still in the gym. I'm going to work out when I'm done here. I'm going to go home and watch probably a boxing match or something like that. I always tell guys in bars because they want to be fighters. They want to train. I tell them, well, the first lesson is free. And if you come to the gym, to whenever you say you like, they, they, it's always a Saturday night. They're going to come Sunday to come train or come Monday. If you show up Sunday or Monday, whenever we agreed upon, I will train you for free for a year. All you got to do is show up. 
You know how many of you guys have showed up in the last 15, 20 years I've been doing this? Zero. Zero guys. And I, that's like me, I don't, I don't go out no more. You know, I, I haven't gone out for many years. But when I did go out, that was what I would always encounter. You know, people just trying to talk my ear off about fighting. And then when I tell them to come train, they will never come train. So just next time, tell them the first lesson is free. All you got to do is yeah, show up. Ken Shamrock used to have the story. He used to talk about when he would go to bars, how many guys wanted to fight him just because they were like, he's the toughest guy. And so, they, you know, like if I can beat him, then I'll, you know, just delusional people. Mm-hmm. And he he said he would encounter that a lot at, at, at bars where, um, and, and yeah, I got I got that last night. And the guy was so loud, you know, because the, the club was In so your loud. ear, yeah. I, I, Bro, I literally woke up this morning. I literally woke up. I was laying in bed. I opened my eyes and I was like, my left ear was like, like still, still ringing. Like, feeling, I could like still hear the guy talk, like legit. Yeah. I could still like, hear the guy talking in my ear, like loud, like. And then if I would back up, he would. He was. He would be. He and I was thinking. Yeah. He, the he, close talk kind. Me, right. He'd probably be like, well, well, like, and I was thinking. I woke up and I thought, number one, I'm like. What am I doing in a bar to sing karaoke? Because I, I like singing karaoke because I think it helps with like public fears. So no one no we talk about this a lot on the show. We're doing things that so you know, getting up there and singing in front of strangers for me is is an exercise in confidence and you know, mm-hmm. being poised under pressure. And so that's part of why I do it. There's also had a good friend who was a DJ, but I was waking up to and I was like, why did you go there? Why, why did you suffer that guy like constantly talking loud and following you around everywhere and talking in your ear? Don't do that again. I was at, literally, I woke up having this conversation. Like my, my the dream, human experience, my, brother. That's the human yeah. experience. Welcome to the Noah, world. You've been, Noah, you've been waiting patiently. Um, we'll let, you know, we're, we're winding down now. Miguel, we would love to have you on again. Be, oh, for sure, brother. Noah whenever you guys want, man. We would love for to sure. have you on again. We are serious about getting some Respect the Mullet t-shirts. We can pay for them if we have to. We do want them. Oh, I got you guys, man. I got you guys. And, and, uh, and, and oh, and we got to get you to, to say something for every man BJJ or something. Like, we got to get some Spanish, some kind of Mexican Miguel Torres thing, if we can get that before we go. Noah, before we get the little Spanish sound off from our, from our buddy Miguel, I know you've got, you probably got a few more questions on the stage is yours, brother. Now, you know, um, you strike me, you know, the more now having spoken to you, um, I'm, I looked in the past, you know, watched you with on um, other other episodes. You really seem like a pillar of the community, of your Love community. It. And um, I, I want to express gratitude um, towards that ethos that you carry. That is a true warrior. A warrior ethos is to Thank care you. about your flock, care, care about your your community. And it, it's clear to me that um, your experience in life with fighting has built your uh, has, has has smooth you know smooth that marble smooth that wood out to where it's just a refined prod, uh, product you know it but we're never we're never finished pieces of work um, um, we're never we're never at that end stage um, so what are you working at today on? with with respect to your um your role in the community and how you're developing the next generation of of uh um in the community my whole mentality and what i do is like i always want to leave a legacy and to me a legacy isn't what you've accomplished it's what you leave behind for the people that that you leave behind you know 
So for me, I always wanted to build something to where people trusted me to train them and to teach them jiu-jitsu or kickboxing or mixed martial arts, not because of what I learned from somebody else, from what I've experienced and what I've learned and what, you know, my travels have brought to me. I think that living the, the, the actual art itself gives you a different perspective when you teach. Carlson fought two-hour fights, two-and-a-half-hour fights, no gloves, no rules. Uh, I think something like that, him being my coach, knowing that he did things like that and he believed in me, gave me that air of invincibility. And I try to give that back to my students. So my biggest thing is whenever I could be at a tournament, if I'm not out of town or I'm not training for a fight or I'm not doing something for a fight, I'm going to be at every tournament. I'm going to be at every fight that I can be at and support my students. That way they know that they have a guy that was – I don't want to sound like Carl's. But so that would give his all to his people. And that was how Carlson was. He was the kind of man that gave his all to his people. And if you were in his inner circle, you were you were going to be in his inner circle. You were his person. You were his guy. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming onto the podcast today. Uh, Thank Frank, you, Frank, I'll hand this back to you. Oh, yes. So, so uh, yeah, I did. I did want to. Um, Miguel, what do you say? I thought of this because Noah's question. What do you say to, because um, everybody right now, the thing that's happening now, this didn't happen back then. There, you know, there were pioneers like you, Uriah, Rich Franklin, and, you know, Anderson Silva. There were people who were really in it, Dan Henderson, Couture. There's a lot of dipping your toe in the pool now. Everybody wants to say they're a fighter. They want one fight, two fight, three fights, pick an easy fight, whatever. Everybody wants to be a fighter. Everybody has these grandiose visions. I always tell people, I'm like, look, to really be a fighter and make money at it, you're looking at, I mean, an MMA fighter, you're looking at like 1% who make, you know, really good money or a lot of money. Right? So you've got a 99% chance that people are not going to, they're not going to make a lot of money. It's not going to support them, but everybody wants to chase that 1%, right? That 1% chance for making a lot of money and everybody knowing your name is a dang, is a heck of a dangling carrot. It's like, man, wow. Like I could be that. Right. So nobody thinks about the odds of, Hey, like the odds are overwhelming that this is, you know, that this, you're not, you're not, it's not going to be this delusional, grandiose, like world champion. Everybody knows my name thing. What are you what would you tell people out there? Again, I know I know your thing is, well, come see me on Monday. Right? I guess that's your thing. If they say I want to be a fighter, that's so that's the Miguel Torres solution, which is just come see me on Monday, glove up, and that's a good start, right? You're, you're serious. You, you you just like to throw them right in. Then you just like boom, just swim with. The well, I want to right test away. them. I want to see yeah. what they're. I want to see what they're about. So when I get a guy that comes in and gets beat up and has a bad day at jiu-jitsu or a bad day in kickboxing or he got dropped to the body shot or his leg is destroyed, if he doesn't come back tomorrow because he was in pain or he was sore, he's never going to be a fighter. If the guy comes back the next day and can't spar but wants to still train, now he's going to become a student and now he's going to understand what it's going to take, to, what he's going to have to go through. So for me, the faster I get to put somebody through that process, if they're trying to really be a fighter, the faster I can give them that mentality of what they're going to encounter, the, I'm not, you know, I'm not in that sense. I'm not trying to placate you because I take that very serious. You know, that's my, yeah. that's my one thing in my life that, that defined me who I was as a person. You like to weed them out. You like to weed that out really yeah. quickly with the, with the yeah. Miguel Torres litmus test, which is, Oh, okay. Um, you know, there's a, we have, there's a pair of gloves right there. Yeah. Yeah. We have. Okay. So you like to just, um, what, you know, Drysdale and I have had this conversation. No one. I've had the conversation. How can you tell, 
because we always say if you have 100 students on the mat and they're all white belts and you look around and you try to predict who's going to be the good ones, who's going to stay, who could be a champion. Easy. What, Easy. So for you, that's what? you got a room full of white belts. They're new. What are you looking for in that first week or two weeks to say this person could have that it? It says they could be they could stick around for a black belt. They could do well if they ever competed. They could be among the best in the room. What are you looking for? First thing is they take action. They come to class as much as they can. Next thing is self-respect. They respect themselves. They don't talk during class. They don't mess around. They're not there to joke around. They're there to learn. And they have a goal. Third thing is they have goals. They're, they want to be a black belt. They want to fight one day. They want to compete one day. They want to be a world champion. Whatever, however small their goal is, they have a goal already. Goals can grow. Goals, goals can, can grow up or go down depending on how your life changes, you know. So for me, those three things, their actions they take, you know, not the words. I've heard so many people talk and they never show up. And then I've had guys that don't talk at all that show up and do everything. And then, you know, pretty much how they respect themselves. You know, do they do they eat right? Do they sleep? Do they take care of their family if they have a family? Do they do they drink? Do they do drugs? Do they go out at night? Do they, you know, how, how you feed your body outside of the gym, how you, what you watch, what you consume health-wise, you know, your spirituality, all those different things make a complete fighter. It's not just a how you fight. It's everything else that makes you complete. Because I know guys that have the ability to fight great fights, but if they got famous, they would kill themselves because they would party themselves to death or their friends would ruin them or they wouldn't last, you know. So for me, I can tell right away how somebody's going to react by how they treat themselves and how they treat other people in the gym and then how they come in and how they train. And you don't got to be the best guy in the gym to be a world champion, but you got to be yeah. consistent. You got to ask questions and you got to come around and you got to be a part of everything. Those are the guys that are going to last the longest. Let's dig a little bit deeper than in your why, because, you know, Noah said this, and I'm glad Noah said this because I was thinking I, I missed this question because I, I was going to ask it and then I lost thought of it as we were going. And that was like, I, I really am a, to echo what Noah said, like, bro, you deserve like, a lot of people out there in the MMA community, they know Miguel Torres, the fighter. They've seen you in the cage. They know you at the press conferences. They don't have any idea how entrenched you are, how important you are to that community, how much stuff. And you legit, like legit going back to the early days, you've always been that guy that was all about the community, all about helping. If people didn't have money, you didn't turn away. You've always been that guy. You've always had that generous spirit. A lot of people, even the fans back in the day, they didn't know that Miguel. That wasn't, they knew the mariachi Miguel, they knew the mullet, they knew the showman, they knew the attacking Miguel always coming after you, fight anybody. But they didn't, anytime, anywhere, any place, you really were that kind of guy. Anytime, anywhere, any place. Like Chuck Liddell, you know, you were DS Brothers, you're, you're really one of those guys. But let's dig a little bit deeper into the why. You said, hey, Frank, hey, Noah, I... I, I think I was doing it because I wanted to create an atmosphere, a gym, be the kind of instructor that I wish I had had when I was younger. Let's go deeper, though. Why is that still important? Let's go a little deeper into, the, into that layer. Why is it so important? Because a lot of people do what you do, and, and I'll be honest, some of it is just for show. It's just for profit. Like, you were doing it when for profit. it wasn't about profit. What, what, why, why is that so why is that just the way you're wired or is there some life event what 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 why is that so important to to you before i knew what visualization was or manifesting things i was already doing that i got turned down so many times when i wanted to fight i went to boxing gyms i went to kickboxing gyms where there was like real fighters 
and they would always turn me down. And I never understood why they would turn me down. So for me, I always knew, can you guys still hear me? Yep. Okay, hold on. I can't see the camera. Give me a second. I lost you guys. I'm so sorry. Give me one second. You're good. We hear you fine. I got a, I got a phone call and then I, let me get Chrome back up. Okay, here we go. Gotcha. Sorry. Yeah, so ask the question one more time. Sorry, stuff in the beginning. You, you, you were saying that you would go to other gyms and you would want to train. You would want to train with them. Ah. You would want sort of a challenge and they would turn you away. So people would turn me down or tell me that I was too skinny or I didn't have the right body frame for it. Or I was too small. They would always tell me that I couldn't do it. And I knew inside in my spirit, in my heart, I knew I could do it because I survived so many ass whoopings when I was younger from a lot of different people. I knew that if I learned how to whoop ass, I wouldn't have a problem. You know, I know a lot of guys that, that used to be bullies or used to fight all the time when they got punched once or they got hit once, they, they cried or they backed away or they cowered away. They, they couldn't lose fights. I knew I could lose a fight. I just need to learn how to win a fight. Once I started learning how to, how to win fights or how to become successful, I seen the power and how strong martial arts was. It literally transformed my life. It literally helped me to make my, to figure out my identity. Uh, and I knew that if I can pass it to somebody else, that I would literally like not just make 500 bucks or win a medal or get a trophy or a belt or win a, you know, fame or whatever. I'd actually really change somebody's life. And if I could change somebody's life, I think that was more important than me making money or winning a medal or getting a belt. Because when you change one person's life, that person now has a charge to try to pass down to somebody else. And it's like a, like a, like a good virus, you know? So for me, I always wanted to pass on that, that same feeling of, of, of confidence and of power, not strength because I'm still not strong, but I feel like I have this power. People always say I walk cocky and I say, yes, I do walk cocky. I earned that walk. I was like, I walked that way on purpose because I'm, I'm powerful. My spirit is heavy. That's why I walk with my, you know, my hands like that. So for me, Giving back to my community and giving back even, even people that, that couldn't afford it because I couldn't afford things when I was younger. And when I couldn't afford things when I was younger, I was like, man, I'm like, if only I could train here, I'd be a whole different person. And eventually when I got to, to train somewhere and become a different person, how could I give back to my, to my community that people do, that don't have money or that have kids that they can't afford certain things? And that gets into a whole realm of politics, you know, where they shouldn't have so many kids or they should have more money or whatever it is. I was born into a family that didn't have money. You know, it's just the way it is. I had friends that grew up that had money and they can do whatever, just hockey lessons and play on, on league, traveling leagues and do all these things. And they weren't even good athletes, but they couldn't afford to do the experience. So for me, I always thought, how could I teach somebody who couldn't afford the class, you know, experience of life-changing experience that can make them a better person and literally give them the confidence to pursue their, their, their dreams. And most people think that when they hear, oh, I want to be a scientist, I want to be a doctor, I want to be whatever I want to be, People will turn them down and say, well, you better think of something lower or lower your expectations. I wanted to be a world champion in mixed martial arts, and I wanted to change the world in, as far as fighting went. And in my own way, I believe I did that. Whether I get that respect, I get that honor or not, I know in some way I did that. And I know that I can pass that on to the youth and to even if you're not a, a child, even if you're a grown person. I have students that are 70 years old that wanted to do this their whole lives, but they couldn't. And then they met me when they were 60, and then now they train kickboxing or jujitsu, whatever it is, and they're on the mat every day. They lift weights. And they're, and I have guys that are 50 that come in that are not even in half as good a shape as these guys that are older than them. So I know that the martial arts can change your life at any point, any time. It's just a matter of when you decide to get up and get off get off the couch and get on the mat. So that's what I want to, like, that's the legacy I want to leave behind for my people. That's beautiful. So can we get in Spanish, we want to get it in Spanish, can we get something that says something like, 
you know, this this is Miguel Torres, you know, and I'm here and, and welcome to the Everyman BJJ show with Frank Fours and Noah, Noah, you know, Noah Green. Whatever. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Frank and Noah. Yes, Frank so, and Noah. However you want to decorate it. You can get you can get fancy, you can add on to it. I got you. you I got you. No, Soy Miguel Torres. Oh, my bad. I got you. Three, two. Soy Miguel Torres. Aquí estamos con Everyman BJJ, con Frank and Noah. Los mejores de los mejores. Escuchen aquí el máximo. <laughs> That's great. Oh, very nice. Very nice. <laughs> That's great. Well, this has been wonderful. We'll be, looking, we'll be looking for the respectable t-shirts. I'm, I'm not... Hit. Send me your guys' addresses and your sizes, and I'll send you a hoodie and a t-shirt both. Yeah, Noah, Noah has a reverse mullet. He has a he has a facial mullet. So <laughs> that's hey, that, I that you can still rock the shirt then, bro. You're all good, man. You're all good. Well, thank you very much for coming on to the show. I really enjoyed uh, you, getting the opportunity to speak with you, and thank you, brother, and the gifts that you provide. Um, and I enjoy, um, and, and I really enjoyed this, Frank. Thank you, brother. All you. No, Miguel, thank you so much. You got me inspired. I'm like, I need to step my game up. I need, I need to, to do more to, to, to share the art with others too. So, bro, you like do, Miguel. you do, you do so much, man. I promise you, you do so much. I watch all your stuff, man. Like you inspire you, me, Frank. You inspire it, it, me, bro. I'm getting healthy because I see how you eat and how you train. I'm like, bro, I have no excuse anymore. You know, I got to get back on my shit. So, thank you, Frank. I really appreciate you, brother. I do. I appreciate you, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'll see you guys. You guys have a great rest of the weekend. And, Miguel, we're, we would love to have you on again, brother. We'll Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, brother. Anytime. Thank great. you. Whenever you guys want, hit me up, bro. Send All me right. an email with your addresses. Absolutely. Will. We'll, we'll do. All right, boys. Peace. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.